And I was later told by the one of the largest pension fund, the largest pension fund in the country that, quote, they have given up on the country. They are moving all the money out starting in the fall. You're listening to The Corbett Report. Welcome, friends. This is James Corbett of CorbettReport.com in a conversation that is being recorded on the 17th of September 2019. And today we have a special guest who has been on the program before, but it was several years in the past. I, uh, I note with some degree of perplex, uh, perplex nature. I don't know why that's been, but let's correct that now. Today we're talking to Catherine Austin Fitz, who I'm sure many of you out there know from her work at Solari.com. If not, why not? You should be checking that website out for all its voluminous detail on, well, especially financial matters, but on a wide range of subjects that impinge on financial matters, which as we know is pretty much everything, because everything in the world has some sort of financial aspect to it. Uh, For people who don't know, Catherine Austin Fitz did serve as the Assistant Secretary of Housing in the Bush One regime back in 1989 and 1990, but that short description does nothing to the voluminous detail of her extensive uh, travels and travails uh, through Washington, the corridors of power, in and out, Wall Street, and uh, and as an independent um, journalist and, and author and someone who's been digging into these issues for years. Once again, I will direct you to Solari.com in general for more detail. But Catherine Austin Fitz, it's great to have you back on the program today. Thanks for joining us. It's it's great to be back. And if you don't mind me switching the subject for just a little, I just finished watching 9-11 Whistleblowers, and it's absolutely fantastic. That's your new documentary. Um, as you know, one of my favorite documentaries ever is 9-11 Trillions. And I think you've you've done as good a job on 9-11 Whistleblowers as 9-11 Trillions. And having that come out on the anniversary of 9-11 was really gratifying for me, and I'm trying to get everybody to watch it. I think it's a real triumph. So congratulations, James. Excellent. Well, thank you very much for that feedback. I do appreciate that. And I think that really isn't off the subject of what we're talking about today, because as I say, everything does have a financial oh, aspect. So it, it's totally it's totally on topic. Absolutely. Well, let's introduce Absolutely. the topic for people, because uh, people might be wondering what we are going to be talking about today. Specifically, we're going to be talking about uh, something that you covered in extensive detail in your 2018 wrap up of the Solari report, which is available at Solari.com. We'll direct people there for more information about how to receive the report. But uh, this extensively documents a rather remarkable development that took place rather quietly late last year in October of 2018 that many people might have missed. But hopefully not Corbett Report viewers who remember my conversation with Dr. Mark Skidmore from late last year about the Pentagon's missing trillions and all of that. Uh, For people who don't remember, I'll direct people back to that. I'll put the link in the show notes so you can watch that conversation. But Catherine Austin Fitz, let's start informing people about FASAB 56 and the completion question mark of the financial coup d'etat that's been going on for at least the past couple of decades? Right. Absolutely. There's now $21 trillion in undocumentable adjustments that we know about. You discussed those with Dr. Skidmore. And while everyone was paying attention to, or I shouldn't say everyone, many people were paying attention to Supreme Court justices, then nominee Kavanaugh's sex life, what was quietly working its way through both the White House and through the Congress was the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board. Now, that's the federal one. Um, and it was a policy, James, that would allow uh, both the, essentially the White House and the, and, and the government to take sections of 24 agencies plus another 150 federal agencies secret. 
So now the government is free to have secret books by a process that we're not allowed to know and approved by people we're not allowed to know. And we're not allowed to know that they did it. So when you look at the federal government books, they're totally meaningless. And the theory is that an informal policy board can promulgate a policy approved at the at the sort of administrative level that completely overrides all the financial management laws and the U.S. Constitution requirements on financial disclosure. So what I did at the end of the year is I said, it's time to take everything, all of the documentation on 30 years of, of shenanigans on the federal credit, put it in a hard copy and mail it to investors and concerned citizens all around the world. Because this is an issue, what what they did, James, uh, you know, when you when you describe the policy, it sounds very sec- uh, obscure. What they did was they basically took the majority of the U.S. securities market dark. Right now, let's let's flesh that out for people who don't understand the significance of that. Of course, the U.S. Okay. securities market is the underpinning, the backbone of the entire global financial architecture as it has existed in the post World War II era, and the idea of taking that dark. What does that mean? Put that, put handles on that so people can grasp Well, I wouldn't it. say it's the underpinning because remember, we've, we've grown the, the emerging market bond and stock markets significantly since 1990. They've really grown tremendously, but it's still the, the 800-pound gorilla in the room. What you've got is U.S. Treasury securities and anything related to U.S. Treasury securities or dependent on the federal credit now does not have appropriate disclosure behind it. And then all the private stocks, all the private companies who are dependent on federal credit for their either contracts or a variety of different subsidy programs. So when I say the majority of the U.S. securities market, I mean all the private companies who are very dependent on the federal credit, both directly and indirectly, as well as treasury bonds and all the related bonds like Freddie Fannie's and the mortgage securities. So you're talking about a very significant portion um, I should also mention municipal bonds, which are heavily dependent on money coming out of the Treasury. If I go to any county, and America's just divided into 3,100 counties, there is usually 50% or more of the revenues in that county directly or indirectly come from the federal credit. So we have centralized an enormous amount of the U.S. economy um, and securities market running through the federal credit. And if you take that mechanism dark, it means everything in that process goes dark. So for example, we have $25 trillion in U.S. pension funds. The U.S. pension funds are the largest investors in U.S. treasuries. Now let me just walk you mechanically how this works. I, I put a dollar into my pension fund, that's real savings. I, uh, my pension fund turns around and buys a U.S. treasury with that dollar. The dollar goes into treasury. If you look at the 21 trillion missing from the federal government, Let's just postulate that that dollar leaves by some unknown mechanism out the back door. What do I, the pension fund holder, have? I've got a treasury security that I'm liable for as a taxpayer. So I've just converted a dollar of an asset into a dollar of liability. Now, you can say to me, I can't prove that that's happening. If you look at the refusal of the federal government to comply with the federal financial statement laws, since they were promulgated in in the mid-90s, I don't know that it's not disappearing out the back door. We have no reliable financial statements. And, you know, when a group of people, Dr. Skidmore and myself, pressured for reliable financial statements, what we got was FASB 56 and a 
a government promulgation of a of an administrative policy that says we can keep all of our books secret. Now, what that means is we're required to pay taxes into a mechanism and they're not required to tell us what they did with our money. I mean, that's fascism. That is not a democracy. That's fascism. So what we're watching is the conversion of the of the governance model of the United States of America into a a straight fascism system, because in fact, if you look at where the money's going, those governmental operations increasingly are not run by government employees, they're run by private corporations. So we're basically forced by law to pay an enormous amount of taxes into this system, and our pension funds and retirement funds are buying an enormous amount of these securities. The money's going into the system, it's going into the hand of private corporations, the assets increasingly are going into the balance sheets of private corporation, and there's no reporting back. It's a secret. It's a black box. All right. So we've probably lost some of the listeners here who aren't familiar with the backstory to this. Let's hone in on FASB 56, which uh, here's my summary statement of that, and you tell me where I'm wrong. This is a statement uh, issued by the Federal Accounting Standards Advisory Board. It was finalized and approved in October, or put on the books in October of 2018, although I believe it had been drawn up since at least 2017. But essentially what it says is that any Uh, department in the federal uh, system can take some of their funds and essentially make them black by saying by uh, assigning them to another um, another project or putting them under a a different part of the books and saying it's for this when really it's for something else um, based on national security and classification and so essentially they're saying we can lie directly to the american public about what money is being used for right and it's important to understand that when they do that it is undisclosed who makes those decisions and the process by which they make those decisions. So it's not just that they can create secret books, but the who and how of what they steer into those secret books is secret. So it's, it's not just that that portion is secret, you know, it's the process that is secret, which is very, very important to, as a, as a disclosure issue. There's something else, and that is if you look at the waivers that are now allowed by the National Intelligence Director, the National uh, Intelligence Director is now allowed to waive SEC disclosure requirements for companies doing business with national security classification in the U.S. government. So, in other words, every bank and contractor doing business with the Department of Defense or the intelligence agencies, in theory... Uh, could could have their SEC disclosure requirements waived. So when you combine FASB 56 with the existing classification laws, it's much more impactful. Now, one thing I'll uh, I'll back up and say um, the the way policies like this are promulgated in the federal government, you have a comment period. So you circulate a draft, and then you um, you receive comments, and then you um, then you issue the final policy. So it's a chance for people to put in their two cents, give you input and tinker with the policy in the, in the, um, in the wrap up, uh, we included some coverage of what the comments were. And it was very interesting. Um, for example, the department of housing and urban development essentially said, Oh, wow, we really need this. <laughs> and you know, that raises a question. Why does a domestic housing agency need to keep its books secret? So, um, that was interesting. 
The most interesting comment I thought was the SEC that basically said no comment. Now, the SEC is required under the law. Their their goal in life is to protect investors and, and manage and, and promulgate rules related to disclosure in the U.S. markets. They had essentially no comment, which is breathtaking because, again, I think you're talking about taking a majority of the U.S. Uh, securities market dark and doing it when you have global investors all around the world, um, you know, completely dependent on that market. Yeah, perhaps not surprising to people who know about the SEC and the way it operates. Uh, whistleblowers like Richard Grove talking about how they uh, purposefully bought the uh, the accounting software right. that they knew had backdoors in it and other such shenanigans. Perhaps right. that isn't surprising. But again, this is one of those things that slots into a much bigger picture. And in fact, you have a very personal window on that picture. You mentioned housing and urban development's comment on uh, Statement 56, essentially, hey, we need this. And you, you raise the very valid question, well, why would why would a domestic housing agency have any need for class classification, national security, what on earth? But you actually know a little bit about that. Tell people a little bit about your story with regard to that. Well, so I served as Assistant Secretary of Housing in the first Bush administration. And when I got to HUD, what I discovered was the financial system, you know, the financial systems were really in a state, a very primitive state. So um, I remember calling in the budget office and under the law, the FHA commissioner is legally responsible to make sure the FHA funds are um, are basically managed in accordance with law, including the big single family fund operating on a self-sustaining basis. So I called in the budget officer after reading the budget, you know, thousands of pages. And I said, nowhere in here does it say if we're making or losing money. And he said, oh, well, that's not in the budget. You know, the, the accountants have that. And I said, well, who are the accountants? Give me their name. I need to call them. And they said, oh, they work for another assistant secretary and you're not allowed to talk to them. So essentially, so I said, well, don't we have financial statements? And they said, well, we have financial statements. When we get audited, we were audited a couple of years ago, but we don't do them every year. And I said, look, we're putting out 50 to $100 billion of mortgage insurance a year. We have to have financial statements every year. And in fact, they need to be audited. So, uh, you know, I always tell people I, I used my political goodwill raising money for George H.W. Bush to get the accountants moved over to me. I always tell people I, I got a pair of cufflinks in the accountants. The accounts walked in and I discovered we're losing $11 million a day in the fund that's required by law to be self-sustainable. So, you know, we went from there. But by the time I left FHA and uh, stepped down from Assistant Secretary of Housing, I provided enough people, enough money, enough outside firms, everything you would need within reasonable period of time to have absolutely perfect uh, financial statements. And I've been able to persuade the Office of Management and Budget to basically legislate for HUD and then for all the federal agencies audited financial statements required government-wide. And that's what triggered the event in 1996 that, that many of these agencies started publishing uh, documents that says, we can't produce audited financial statements, uh, you know, and we have this many undocumentable adjustments. And it was through that process that ultimately we started to learn about the not only the extraordinary anomalies in the financial statements, but the, the absolute refusal to publish financial statements and the excuses, you know, an excuse that says, look, I'm having trouble getting my systems to talk uh, to each other. You know, that'll work for a year or two. But when you have a wealth of resources to get the systems to work and you use that excuse for 30 years straight in a row, you know, it's a joke. So 
it's interesting. I've heard hundreds of excuses about whether why the federal government can't produce, you know, reliable financial statement. And it's at some point you realize, oh, it's it's this is a game, and they have no intention of producing reliable financial statements. Right. It it is a joke, and it would be funny if it wasn't so serious. But uh, one aspect of that that I have talked about before, and I know you've covered in depth, is specifically related to the DOD, the Department of Defense, and the fact that they've been under right. a mandate by law to actually produce audited books for the last two decades and have been completely unable to do right. so. Uh, as I put in the... No, it's not just DOD. It's, it's, we, we had a law pass, you know, and that's where FASB, uh, the, federal accounting, uh, the Federal Accounting Advisory Standards Board got created was the law that then instituted a, a requirement by law that every every government agency had to produce audited financial statements and through that law was given the resources they need to make sure that they could so that law has been in existence for every agency um, and what FASB 56 is basically subverts that not only for every agency but every governmental entity and if you add in the classification laws you can extend it to all the all the different banks and contractors that do business with the government and this is important, James, because if you go back and look at the history of the basically sabotage of the federal financial mechanism and, and disclosure requirements, one of the most important things that happened was when George H.W. Bush took over the enforcement and intelligence line as vice president under Reagan, and uh, an executive order was promulgated that would allow private corporations and private banks to assume very uh, classified and sort of deep national security functions. So basically what you did was you created a secret mechanism that would allow the government to borrow an infinite amount of money or the central banks to print an infinite amount of money and pay private corporations large amounts of money to do secret things behind a secret wall and FASB 56 has made it even more secret. Now, what I will tell you is this is the number one. So if you're upset about inequality, if you're upset about environmental pollution, this is where it comes from. It comes from this secret mechanism and everything it's been doing for the last 70 years. But when you turned it over to the private corporations, what you're saying to every politician is if you slap out more money to this corporation and its stock goes up, then it can afford to give you political contributions. I mean, this is the cycle the spiral down we're watching in Washington and Wall Street. Government does something that makes, you know, makes the profits go up at a private corporation. Its stock goes up, its investors get capital gains, and the investors turn around and kick back a certain portion in political contributions to Congress. You know, and around and around we go. If you look at the US stock market, it is it is outperformed stock markets around the world. And what you realize is it's this very mechanism of pumping in secret money into into U.S. corporations that's been driving the U.S. stock market higher. Now, if I'm an institutional investor, I'm looking at that. The question is, how long can the game last? And if you look at what is behind this in terms of the impact on the federal credit uh, on the Treasury market in terms of credit and credit analysis, I would say that we're levitating on a, in a very big bubble that's dependent on something where there may not be much there there. Catherine, surely if there was some sort of problem with the full faith and credit of the U.S. government, one of the ratings agencies like S&P would step in and downgrade the federal government, right? 
Right. And that's one of the reasons um, the the first long piece after the introduction in volume one of The Real Game of Missing Money, it's a two volume presentation. But the first article is a uh, is one that I wrote with my attorney called Caveat Emptor. And in it, uh, we go through and this is really written for investors, both institutional and retail investors. The, the main point of caveat emptor, James, is saying you can't depend on anyone else to do the due diligence. The conflict of interests, whether it's on the dealer's side, on the broker's side, on the money manager's side, on the rating agency side, there are too many conflicts of interest. Caveat emptor, buyer beware, you must do your own due diligence. And the point of volume one and volume two is to give, give you almost everything you would need to, to do due diligence other than going to the treasury website and looking at their financial statements, which we didn't republish. The The point of the rating agencies in, in um, I think it was 2011, I'd have to go back and look at the book, S&P downgraded the U.S. Treasury from a AAA to a AA plus. And, um, and the result was uh, a year and a half later, the Department of Justice went after them and almost destroyed them and their holding company. Um, 18 days after they dropped the rating, the CEO of S&P had to quit. So, you know, the guy in charge lost his job. Um, then the Department of Justice went after them on supposedly a separate issue related to the housing bubble and mortgage-backed securities. But they didn't go after all the other rating agencies who were equally complicit and, and um, you know, in, in a very equal place to S&P on the, on the housing bubble. They just went after S&P. When it was all said and done, as I said, S&P and McGraw-Hill were very badly damaged. It was very expensive, big billion-dollar settlement. And the message clearly was, if you, you know, if you try and downgrade the U.S. credit, you will be destroyed. So if you look now at the potential, I mean, why would anybody at Moody's and S&P get, you know, it's a guarantee looking at what happened the last time around that you're going to lose your job, you're going to get fired, the company's going to be destroyed. So we've reached a point where, where the rating agencies can't rate the U.S. Treasury. It's too dangerous. Yeah. I mean, Mafia Tactics 101. And of course, that exposes the shell game for what it is, a shell game. Um, now, you, uh, now the, as you say, this is for, I mean, clearly retail investors, institutional investors, people in Washington will understand the significance of this and will want to get into the nitty gritty details. But for a lot of people down at the regular human level, it's issues, the political issues that were, are dangled in front of us, the income inequality, the environmental pollution, these things also relate back to that. So let's, let's relate this to the human level and let's go to another event, the defining event of the 21st century, 9-11. How does the missing money play yeah. into the story of 9-11? It was very interesting. I was, had been working for years with a wonderful reporter from Washington who was covering missing money. She'd written about six or seven articles I was doing research for. And finally, we were wrapping it into a huge story that was going to be published, I think, on September 15th. It was in Insight Magazine, which at the time, a complimentary copy went to every Senate and House office. And James, it was an incredible article. It finally got published several months later, but it, you know, it got no attention. But it brought it down to a state level and showed every American for their state how much you had lost per person. Lots of graphs and charts. It really brought the whole issue home, and it was going to be a big cover story. And um, it was interesting because we were working on it the weekend before 
uh, September 9th, and I had a very famous incident happen to me at my church about 9-11, which I can tell you later. But um, I called the reporter after church and, and said, you know, this story's really going to this story is really going to have a major impact. It's really going to go. The next day was September 10th, and Donald Rumsfeld gives a press conference and says there's 2.3 trillion missing from the Department of Defense. Actually, it was 3.3, but he, he just mentioned one year. And it was interesting because uh, we I called Kelly and we were talking about it, and I said I made the mistake of saying nothing can stop this story going now. Because we assumed that when Rumsfeld did it, he was trying to get ahead of Kelly's story, you know, because it was going to have quite an impact that Friday. And, of course, we were wrong. Um, and the rest is history. You know what happened the next morning. That was 9-11. And boom, you know, immediately DOD gets a $48 billion uh, appropriation increase and we're off to the races and nobody cares about the missing money. And... Uh the Pentagon and WTC7, did they have any financial records that might have pertained to what was going on? Well, extraordinary. You know, every time I look at the Building 7 coming down, I think, ah, Warren Buffett's building. <laughs> because that was the Solomon building. Solomon had been sold, uh, I think, in 98 or 99. Buffett sold it to Citicorp, I think. Or, yeah, I'd have to go back and look. But anyway, so, so, so if you look at the government securities dealers, who were making you know major trades around the missing money and the government securities market? Cantor Fitzgerald was destroyed. Um, the Solomon Building came down, but more importantly, you had government uh, you had government offices that were part and parcel of doing major investigations into the Wall Street securities firms um, as a result of the internet bubble and all sorts of shenanigans going on into the '90s, and so. If you look at all the records that could be destroyed or claimed to be destroyed coming down in, in, in those buildings, it's extraordinary. Um, we have been told that the, that the Office of Naval Intelligence was doing an investigation in the missing money, and apparently their offices were hit at the Pentagon. And what was very interesting was for several years later, the Army said we can't produce audited financial statements because of the what was done to our operations on 9-11, which was very strange because my understanding before 9-11 was that their big financial office was out in Ohio. <laughs> so I've never, I've never been able to quite ascertain the truth of the Army statements that, that that interfered with their operation. But whether it destroyed records that could, you know, help that Office of Naval Investigation or the Office of Naval Investigation or, you know, providing an excuse not to produce audited financial statements. You know, 9-11 was an extraordinary um, milestone in making the financial coup, what I call the financial coup d'etat going. And to me, if anyone wants to understand this, I think by far the best documentary on that topic is your 9-11 trillions. And it's very interesting because, as you know, I, I promote that documentary a lot, James. And for many, many years, I tried to talk about the missing money. But other than Rob Kirby, it was very hard for people to connect the dots between the money and 9-11. You know, it was, it was an integration that was hard to happen. And, uh, you know, I kept using and writing articles called Qui Bono. And then you did 9-11 trillion, trillions. And it's really, it's a marvelous way for someone who's interested in the financial aspects to get into it. 
You know, you just raised a very important uh, point there, almost in passing. You say the, the records that were destroyed in WTC7 or the Pentagon, or claimed to be destroyed, and that's, that's a key part of it. How many records were just destroyed Absolutely. on that day, and they say, oops, it was in that building, trust us, so now you, you can't see it, <laughs> right? I mean, that's, that's an easy yeah, way you to... you know, a financial, firm, a financial firm, if you look at disaster recovery plans, a financial firm is never going to have all their data in one building. Yeah, exactly. They're, they're going to have data stored off-site. But it's it's a very common excuse. Well, I don't know if you you know I don't know if you've ever heard me talk about this, but I remember when we were doing the HUD loan sales, um, we had to go in and get the the mortgage files for the defaulted mortgages in Region Six, and they were held at the Murrah biz- Building in Oklahoma City, and I was very nervous about it because the the rumors about both Bush and Clinton, you know, you had Texas and Arkansas in the same region. And so the Iran-Contra files, that was all the files on the Iran-Contra defaulted mortgages. And the rumors about the fraud in those files was very significant. And, of course, the problem when you auction off a mortgage with a file that's, you know, you're auctioning off the legal liability, which is why sometimes you'll see bidders bid way above market to make sure they get that loan because they're looking to get the file. And um, anyway, so I was a little nervous about going in and getting the file. And we were about to send in the team of auditors and contracts, contractors to go get all the files. And right before we went in to get them, ba-boom, they blow up. Convenient. All right. Um, well, well, let's... I always, you know, I, I'm always telling people, it, don't work in a building or on programs that uh, are connected to massive amounts of securities and mortgage fraud because they tend to blow up or, you know, I mean, the the incident of fire, if you look at where the worst fraud was in the, in the mortgage portfolios across the country, the incident of fires was significantly higher in my personal experience. Now that's anecdotal, but, um, you know, I, I think there's, there's a reason to stay clean and stay away from fraud. Right. Not only the, uh, the those physical safety aspects of it, but also the ethical reasons for avoiding being part of something that's demonstrably horrible and ultimately going to end up badly for everyone. And we've referred to this as the financial coup d'etat. Let's talk about that in broader terms. I, I think we can trace this back, at least the origins, to 1947, the creation of the national security state. As I believe you've talked about before, it really culminated in the 1990s. Uh, it was perpetuated and continued through 9-11. Uh, wh- wh- given the broad scope of this very long-term agenda, what really is the significance or meaning of FASB 56 then? Why do they need this type of statement in order to perpetuate and continue something that they've clearly been doing demonstrably for decades? So I think of FASB 56 as 9-11-2 in this respect. Um, so you created a mechanism coming out of World War II that, that basically put the intelligence agencies in the position of being the most powerful bank in the world and, and, and allowed to run very secret operations. Then you merge that with the stock market and the corporate infrastructure in 1981. Now you're really off to the races because you have a way of both pumping the stock market, pumping campaign contributions, and literally secrecy is addictive financially. So you build this, you know, growing infrastructure that's secret, um, and it is basically operating a system to 
you know, run a unipolar world globally. So it's the covert side of financing to run the world, you know, sort of build the unipolar model out. The Soviet Union comes down and that gives you an ability um, to really push the corporate model globally because you're going to, now you're going to globalize. So you're now you're really taking this machinery on steroids in 1995, James, I don't know if you remember this, there was a major budget war and the leadership tried to get a financial package that would get the retirement money and the social safety net on some kind of financially responsible basis. And they couldn't do it. We ended up with a real mess for a period of time while the government shut down. And I was later told by the one of the largest pension fund, the largest pension fund in the country, that quote they have given up on the country. They are moving all the money out starting in the fall. So you reached a point where um, the governmental mechanism the leadership felt was just too frustrating to manage, and and it was at a time where they had decided to globalize. So we had passed the Uruguay round of GATT. We created the WTO. And then we decided, okay, we're going to globalize. What does that mean? It means we're going to take financial capital and we're going to bid and pit labor all around the world against itself. So we're going to, we're going to take the labor in the emerging markets and compete them head on head, mono mono with, with the U.S. and G7 labor in a way that significantly benefits capital. Okay. Um, so we globalize, we're off to the races. Well, what happens? As I said, the president of CalPERS said to me in the spring of 1997, you don't understand, they've given up on the country. I, I had a company and I was working on a way of re-engineering the economy that would significantly help the U.S. labor force sort of jump the curve on globalization and would re-engineer sort of how we use digital technology in neighborhoods to build wealth get the government out of neighborhoods and significantly lower the cost of the social safety net. So I believe there was a way of integrating digital technology that would create massive amounts of wealth, which would basically allow the pension funds to meet their targets for the baby boomers. Our big problem at the time was how are the pension funds going to, you know, build significant wealth to, to meet their targets for the baby boomers. Okay. So I really thought there was a plan to do it. So I presented it to the, some of the top pension fund leaders in the country. And the president of CalPERS said, you don't understand, it's too late. They've given up on the country. They're moving all the money out starting in the fall. Well, I thought he meant we're reallocating money to the emerging markets because we're going to globalize. And so, you know, CalPERS and everybody else is going to significantly increase the amount of stocks in the emerging money markets that they're going to buy. I was wrong. What started that fall, which is the beginning of fiscal federal 1998, was large amounts of money literally started to disappear. So you would get, you know, that that first year we had undocumentable adjustments of 59 billion at HUD, which is unheard of. It's unthinkable. It's more than their entire budget was that year. You know, now 59 billion doesn't sound like a lot of money, but I assure you, you know, in 1998, it was a huge amount of money and it was bigger than their entire budget. And what was interesting is I couldn't get anybody to hear when I discovered it and tried to to get people to pay attention. Everybody was so enthralled with Monica Lewinsky's blue dress that they couldn't hear me. And it was interesting because, you know, 
So, so money started to go missing. And I'll tell you something, when money starts to disappear like that without any internal controls, you know, you get a variety of parties who have enough money to buy everybody. That's one of the things I learned because I was the former assistant secretary of housing and the former lead financial advisor to the Department of Housing and Urban Development trying to warn everybody about the housing bubble and where this was going to go because we were liquidating our wealth as a nation but nobody realized it because we're just having a, a bubble and everybody thinks they're having a party and they're going with the flow. So I tried to warn everyone. And one of the things I discovered is between the central bank, the treasury and the deep state, they can buy almost everybody because they have an infinite amount of money to do it. And of course, as you know, they could buy the media. The, so the reason the Salir report, the Corbett report exists was, uh, you know, we got tired of fake news. Yeah, fake so, news before it was anyways, called fake news. So, right. So money started to go missing and went missing. And in the volume two of The Real Game of Missing Money, I described my 30-year personal history of trying to, you know, because I never I never sat down, James, and said, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to warn everybody that there's money disappearing from the federal government. That was never a big life goal. So, you know, I kind of backed in it, into it because every year I'd say, you know, there's 15, there's this many, a trillion just went missing Two trillion just went missing, you know, and I try and teach people about it and integrate it with what was happening with 9-11, et cetera. Now, what was very interesting, 9-11 had many goals, but one of the goals was to make it possible for the federal government to do a lot more of what they were doing secretly and a lot more through the, the federal government mechanism instead of have to deal with drug dealing and money laundering. In other words, they wanted to move a lot more of the secret finance on budget and not have to do as much covertly because it's very expensive and time consuming to, to do every, you know, to raise this kind of money and manage it covertly because you have so many illegal operations and you create an entire infrastructure that's very difficult to manage. Anyway, so so I believe that 9-11, one of the goals was to move a lot of the black budget on budget. And now the reason I say FASB 56 is sort of 9-11 too, is FASB 56 is a way of moving, you know, everything on budget. So now you don't need Epstein. As soon as they promulgated FASB 56, that was Jeffrey Epstein's death warrant. You don't need Jeffrey Epstein anymore. You don't need the Clinton Foundation you don't need all these laundries. You can just go direct. It's kind of, think of this as the low fee transaction way, you know, to the world's largest black budget. Right. That's, that's an incredibly insightful way of looking at it. And it connects so many dots. So right. many of the dots connect back to this because of course, everything does relate back right. to the finances of how this right. is done. Absolutely. Um, right. Catherine, it strikes me we have just begun to scratch the surface level of this topic, really just setting up the meat and potatoes for our conversation. We've already been talking for over half an hour, so I think we're going to wrap up this conversation here on the caveat that you do come back on the program in the near future to continue discussing this topic and perhaps Absol the... Absolutely. Good, because I want to hit the $21 trillion question or $100 trillion or whatever it is. Where is this money going? I think that's an incredibly important part of this because every financial transaction has two sides. So where's the other side of this? Um, but so, we'll. So can I say one, one yes, thing? Yes, please set it up for next um, time. Yeah. I would really encourage if you are um, a person who is responsible for due diligence in this area, there are millions of people 
you know, whether they're CPAs or money managers or investors, many, many financial professionals all around the world, or if you're just managing your family budget, I mean, this impacts your pension fund. This impacts your, you know, even if you live in Europe. Um, so this impacts money in many, many different ways. The whole point of aggregating everything into the real game of missing money with volume one and volume two at the wrap up, James, and to put much of it that's public on missingmoney.salary.com was so that interested people could get the raw data. This is a, you know, as you know, from looking at volume one and volume two, this is a very dense topic because to understand what's been happening, you need to go through the law. We have seven different articles on the legal issues um, that really lay out how the federal credit mechanism, both at Treasury and the and the um, Federal Reserve, work. So you know, this sovereign bonds are creatures of law. So you really need to understand the law. And this whole package has been designed, whether it's missingmoney.salary.com or the wrap up, to help anybody with professional responsibilities or personal responsibilities with respect to money to help them understand bottom up all the detail of what is going on here. Because it, you and I can summarize it, but if you need to understand it for, for reasons of due diligence, um, what is important for you to understand it is that under the law, FASB 56 is a material event. That means that the US Treasury and any related credit has materially changed, and it materially changed in a very secret and silent way. But you now know that, and you need to do your due diligence, and all of these materials are provided so you can do that. You don't have to trust me. You don't have to trust you. You can go in and get all the gory detail and go through it yourself. You can find all the government documentation. It's all up there on the website. Um, anyway, but I would really encourage you to understand that everything you need to do a complete due diligence is there, and I would encourage you to do it. And the point of this half an hour is to ring the bell and say, there has been a material event. You need to do due diligence, and only you can do it. No one else can do it for you. That's exactly right. No conversation like this is going to just simply plop that information in your head and make it relevant. No, you have to put in the time and effort. And I can attest to the fact this is two heavily footnoted volumes, nearly 400 pages of material, the real game of missing money. It's the annual wrap up from Solari.com. You've talked about missingmoney.solari.com, which we referred to in our conversation with Dr. Mark Skidmore. There's all sorts of material available at Solari.com. How do people get their hands on this report? Um, if you go, the report is subscribers only. It's available in PDF and flipbook, so you can go to Solari.com and um, uh, and subscribe. And then, uh, if you don't want to pay for a premium subscription, which is print and digital, you can just subscribe for a month, a half a year, a year, and then go to the store and buy it. Um, now we have, if you know a subscriber, if you don't want to buy it, you know a subscriber. We have encouraged all of our subscribers. You know, feel free to print it out and give it to your friends. Feel free to send them a PDF. Uh, so you can distribute this widely if you are a subscriber, or you can get it from a subscriber if you know one. 
All right, well, we are going to be linking up your site and the relevant articles and things that we've been talking about as well so people can start delving into it and hopefully get their hands on this report, um, which, as I say, just we have barely begun to scratch the surface. So much detail in here. Catherine Austin Fitz, thank you for your time today, and I'm looking forward to talking to you again in the near future. Thanks, James. Have a wonderful day. And again, congratulations on 9-11 Whistleblower. Great job. Since the day of 9-11, we've been told what happened. Freedom itself is under attack. We've been told who to blame. The Taliban and Al-Qaeda. Osama bin Laden. Terrorists in the terrorist network. Osama bin Laden, the leader of Al-Qaeda. We've been told what to think. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories concerning the attacks of September the 11th. But if you haven't seen 9-11 Trillions or 9-11 War Games, you don't know anything about 9-11. Some might ask, how in the world could the Secretary of Defense attack the Pentagon in front of its people? We had four war games going on on September 11th. $8.5 trillion. The most extraordinary coincidences in the history of mankind. You've never seen so much real-world stuff happen during an exercise. It, it is... Um, I was going to say terrifying. 9-11 Trillions and 9-11 War Games. Watch the documentaries for free online or, for the first time, own them on DVD today. Go to corporatereport.com slash shop for details.